Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles tonight to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. On Tuesdays, um, I'm taking some passages of Scripture and, and one-off sermons over these next few Tuesdays as our year comes to an end, and I trust they'll be encouraging to us, instructive to us. And even as we look at different portions of Scripture, that it'll be an opportunity to enhance our appetite for the Word of God. By the time December comes around, I start to get excited about finishing reading through the Bible or doing whatever plan I've been working on through the year and, and looking ahead to the new year and thinking about going to a, a different approach, perhaps, to reading the Bible or studying the Bible. Being in different parts of the Bible is just a reminder of how rich the Word of God is, how harmonious the Word of God is, and the reality that God's Word is indeed sufficient for all that we need. So as we come to the end of a year and look toward a, the beginning of a new year, I trust that these studies, the vignettes from different portion of the Word of God will, will encourage us, just even in our appetite for the Word of God that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But tonight we're in Genesis 39, and Genesis 39 is part of the account of the life of Joseph. And the account begins with Joseph having been brought into Egypt after being bought by an Egyptian master, Potiphar, and he's now serving in his house uh, as a slave. And let's begin by just reading the first six verses here of Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house... And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance." In Romans 15, 4, Paul reminds us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In Genesis 39, the chapter stands out to us as Joseph responds with integrity in situations where many others would fall into sin. Ever since the fall that's recorded in Genesis 3, 
Every person, every character in the book of Genesis has failed. Even Abraham had multiple failures in his walk with the Lord. The previous chapter in, in this account, chapter 38, records the moral corruption of Joseph's brother Judah and stands in contrast to what we have here in chapter 39. What we have in chapter 39 is a record that Joseph does what is just when unjustly sold into slavery. Joseph does what is right in the face of intense seduction. And Joseph does right when slandered for responding in integrity. Joseph does right. And he does right consistently even when he is wronged. And the title of the message tonight is Doing Right When Wronged. And so in the, in the gripping narrative of this chapter that, that will continue to unfold as we work through the material, Joseph resonates with all who long to live godly in this present world. Here's a man that's in, that is faced with intense pressure, intense temptation, and yet he continues to do the right thing, to honor God with his life. Now, if we step back for a moment and examine the context of this chapter, we find that there's a little bit more to the story than just someone making right choices. And it can kind of be tempting for us to say, okay, now what's his secret to doing the right thing? I just want, I want to figure out the secret to doing the right thing. Well, to understand what's happening in chapter 39, it helps us to zoom out and see the progression of God's purposes, even in the life of Joseph. Joseph wasn't always a slave. In fact, in chapter 37, Joseph is a young man who is living a life of entitlement in many ways. At the beginning of the account of Joseph in chapter 37, we're told that he was loved in verse 3. Joseph was loved more than any of Israel's other sons because he was the son of his old age. And Israel made him a robe of many colors. Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph is a favorite son, and that makes him a rival to his brothers. And it didn't help things when in verses 5 through 11, Joseph has two dreams where his whole family is bowing to him, and he feels quite at liberty to tell everybody that he had dreams that his family would be bowing to him. That certainly did not quench the fires of jealousy and rivalry uh, within the home. So here's this man, this young man, 17 years old, a favorite, well-dressed by his father as a favorite the pet of the family, and probably in line to be fine for the rest of his life. But the Lord has other plans for Joseph. 
And although God revealed to Joseph in those dreams that God would use Joseph in a unique way, there were some lessons that Joseph was going to have to learn along the way. And so one day his father told him to go and bring some things to his brothers who were shepherding. And so look at uh, chapter 37, verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the rest of that chapter unfolds for us how he found his brothers, and his brothers said, yes, now we have the opportunity to get rid of Joseph. They put him in a pit, intending to kill him, but one of the brothers said, no, we're not going to kill him, we're going to sell him to the Midianites, which they did. And so when we come to chapter 39, we now have fast forward from that wilderness place where Joseph was sold to Egypt and to his new master that he was sold to. Something is happening. God made it clear that Joseph would indeed have a role to play in his family in the future, and yet here he is in slavery. And so before we dig into chapter 39, I'd like us to actually look at a scriptural commentary on what's taking place. So turn, if you will, to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is a tremendous passage that recounts much of Israel's history through their deliverance from Egypt. And in this psalm, we have an interpretation of what is taking place in Genesis 39. Look at verse 16, Psalm 105, verse 16. When he, speaking of the Lord, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. There's two things that are taking place. Psalm 105 tells us that God sent Joseph to Egypt. And he also tells us that while Joseph was there as a slave having had a dream of what was to happen, that he was being tested by the Lord. The Lord gave him those dreams that his family would one day bow, bow before him, that he would play a significant role. But, but now here he is, here he is in slavery. Here he is under a master, having to bow to another master. And so how will Joseph respond to that? How will, this, how will this entitled favorite son 
respond now to being under a master, to having no will of his own, to, ha- to, to being completely uh, subservient and submitted to another man. And what Psalm 105 tells us is that the word of the Lord is testing him. You know, often, often the test of character and the test of manhood it isn't, it isn't a matter of whether someone is strong enough to break all bonds and with a roar shatter whatever obstacle is in their path like a bull in a china shop. The test of manhood often is whether or not someone is teachable. If they're willing to submit to difficult circumstances where all their hopes and dreams are essentially being laid aside because of the circumstances that God has put them under at at that time in their lives. And this is what's happening with Joseph. Yes, God had a plan for him. But the word of the Lord was testing him. And Genesis 39 is the crucible of Joseph's testing Will he respond with integrity? Will he respond according to what he knows is right and good, even when he is in the vice of adversity, when he is in the vice of temptation? How will he respond? Is he a man of character? Is he a man who knows his God? And so in these fragile moments of Joseph's life, from a human perspective, we could say that God's purposes hung in the balance. Joseph is the man who will ultimately save the patriarchy that Christ will ultimately come from, from starvation. How will he respond? But what we find as we look at this chapter, what we find is that ultimately it's actually not really about Joseph. There's another main character, God, Yahweh. And this is evidenced for us at the beginning of the chapter when in chapter 39, verse 2, Moses writes, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And then down in verse 5, from that time, he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. And then if we look at the end of the chapter, where Joseph is enduring wrongdoing because of being slandered, again, we find even in the midst of this tragic handling, mishandling of a situation in verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. 
Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So although in chapter 39, we're going to find that Joseph makes wise and right choices, what we see emphasized in the bookends of the chapter is that the main character of the story is Yahweh. God is with Joseph. God is present with Joseph. And when we understand that Genesis is being written by Moses as a record of God's dealings with his people, preparing his people to enter the promised land, preparing them for the adversity that they'll face, giving them a record of God's goodness to his people through the generations, the Israelites needed to have a record of God's presence with his people, God's presence with his people carrying out God's purposes for his people. And that's exactly what we find here with Joseph. So we could say the theme of this chapter that we'll look at in in three parts this evening The theme of this chapter is that God remains with His people. God remains with His people to secure His purposes. Now, again, the title of the message is Doing Right, Doing Right When Wronged. And what we're going to find emphasized is that doing right when wronged is rooted in an understanding that doing right is about pleasing God, not responding to circumstances. Doing right is about pleasing God, not responding to circumstances. Joseph had an understanding that God was with him, and he responded accordingly even while the word of God tested him. God remains with his people to secure his purposes. Let's begin by considering the first six verses that we've read already. And from these verses, we're going to note that God remains with his people in times of separation. God remains with his people in times of separation. It's obvious that Joseph is separated from all that is familiar to him. Verse 1, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Joseph is separated geographically from his home. He's now been moved many miles away to a foreign land. He's in a new geographical location out of Canaan into Egypt. He's in a new positional situation. He's been separated geographically. He's been separated from his position of privilege to now being uh, in a position of privation as, as, as a slave of Potiphar. Everything has changed. His life is completely different from what it had been previously. And he's separated culturally. 
His father's house was a house that God had interacted with directly, that God had promised, made promises, confirmed promises to Israel. They served God. And now he is in a context where many gods are worshipped, where there are all kinds of pagan rituals that are a part of the daily lifestyles of the Egyptians. He's in a completely different cultural setting. You, you couldn't emphasize any more the, the idea of separation than to describe what Joseph is going through here in Egypt as a slave in an Egyptian's home serving a high-level uh, Egyptian officer. The completeness of separation is evident. And again, thinking about the context of what the people of Israel would need when they read this, as they would go into a new situation, as they would begin to conquer the promised land, they would experience the same kind of newness, the same kind of separation from what they were used to. And so the message that God is with his people was critical for them to grasp. Even when situations change, even when there's separation from what is normal and from what is, from what you are used to, God remains with his people in times of separation. The evidence of God's presence we see in verses 2 through 6. Let's read that again. Verse 2 explicitly stated, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate, which again was likely because of the cultural differences and the specific dietary issues with the, the Egyptian rituals. So what is the evidence of God's, of God's presence that we see? Well, Joseph was, made, was a successful man. You see that in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of the Egyptian, his master. Now it's interesting that Joseph as a successful man, this is still Joseph as a slave. This is one of those points where, where we have to think a little bit about what it means to be a successful person. In our culture, we think success is when I'm my own master, right? When I'm independently wealthy and I can run my life, then I've been a successful man. That's not what's happening here with Joseph. Joseph is still a slave. He's under the authority of someone else, and yet he's prospering under the authority of Potiphar, his master. He's successful while still under a master. In fact, the, the Hebrew terminology in this, in this passage is almost a play on words because the, the, the word for successful man 
has very similar sound to the word for an Egyptian man. And, and there's a bit of irony here. Here's Potiphar, the master, the one who owns everything, and here's his slave, and the slave is identified as the successful man. And the reason is because the Lord is with him. And Joseph is experiencing success in what he sets his hand to do under the authority of his master. You have a man in his native element, an Egyptian, versus a man that is separated from all that is familiar, and yet the man that is separated is the one noted as the successful man because of the presence of God. And Potiphar sees that. Potiphar notes that. Verse 3 says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph is prospering. There's that personal prosperity. There's also an outside acknowledgement that Potiphar is seeing. He's, he's, he's observing this pattern of success. And whatever he gives to Joseph to do, it goes well. And apparently, this is unusual enough that it grabs his attention. And by whatever means, Potiphar understands that this is from the Lord. He knows that this is not Joseph in and of himself being successful, but God is blessing Joseph. There's an outside acknowledgement. And that leads to an extended blessing. In verses 4 through 6, as Joseph finds favor in the sight of Potiphar, he's put in charge of everything. And everything that Joseph does continues to prosper. Verse 5 says, From that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. God was with Joseph. God was blessing this Egyptian for the sake of Joseph. And, and we have here, we have this little foreshadowing of, of the fulfillment of God's promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 when God promised to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. And here's Joseph, one of Abraham's seed in a foreign land in Egypt, and God is using Joseph as a conduit of blessing to Potiphar. I love the Bible, the way that the, the Lord shows how, how he is faithful to his word and how he uses people generations later to carry out his promises. It's amazing. Joseph becomes a, a conduit of blessing. There, there's also an echo of what has already been recorded back at the beginning of Genesis. At the beginning of Genesis, there was a perfect world, perfect blessing from God. People had all that they needed. And here, Joseph, 
has been given all that he needs. God's blessing is coming through him. He's been put in charge. He's been given dominion, if you will, of, of Potiphar's house. He's in a, he's in a place of success. And, and as narrative does, when you look at Genesis as a whole book, in, in the reader's mind, there, there, there could be a tension arising. You know, we've seen this before. We've seen people in a blessed place before. What is going to happen with Joseph? Well, we've established, we've established that God remains with his people in times of separation. We're never separated from God's presence. And, and we could spend some time unpacking that. And let me just remind us that the reality is separation is a part of this life. Separation happens in death. Separation happens when, when we have to move geographically. Separation is just a part of this life. But God is always with us. God remains with his people in times of separation. It even establishes us in blessed ways. But as we move to verse 7, the tension of the story rises. We're told at the end of verse 6, now Joseph was, a, was handsome in form and appearance. So verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to jo as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. We're going to see in this next section that God remains with his people in the face of seduction. God remains with his people in the face of seduction. And it's not stated. We don't have the statement, the Lord was with Joseph. Instead, we have the evidence of Joseph's recognition that God was with him when he says, how can I sin against God? How can I sin against God? God remains with his people in the face of seduction. Let's just notice the nature of seduction as recorded in this passage. And obviously, the immediate application is here is a, a, a man being tempted by an adulterous woman, but that same kind of seduction is what God 
uses frequently as, as a figure for any kind of spiritual unfaithfulness. Anytime we're spiritually unfaithful to the Lord, it's, it is a, an act of the, a, a, an adulterous act of our heart. Sin is seductive. And in this, in this account, we find that seduction arrives at a high point of favor. Here's Joseph. He's being blessed, and everything that he does is successful, and Potiphar's house is being blessed because of Joseph. And, and there's this pinnacle of success. And at that time, verse 7, after, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. There's often a reality that we are most vulnerable when we are most blessed. When the Lord pours His blessing out upon us because of our fleshly nature, we drop our guard and we become vulnerable. And and there's a sense that Joseph is very vulnerable here. He has access to everything. He's entirely trusted by his master. I mean, Potiphar doesn't question anything about Joseph. He is entirely trusted. He's over the whole house. And it's at that point that the seduction arrives. It's interesting that she's casting her eyes on Joseph. It implies the possibility of what Proverbs 6.25 warns against, don't be taken by her eyes about the adulterous woman, the looks of an adulterous woman, the wanton looks of an adulterous woman. There's a seducing look that comes inviting God's people away from integrity and into sin. The seduction is not just looks and glances and expressions, but it includes propositioning. Verse 7, lie with me. Again in verse 10, she spoke to him day after day, a constant pressure to give in to sin. And ultimately that seduction is situationally enhanced. Verse 11 says, one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Seduction relies on appealing to the flesh by offering visual and sensual gratification immediately and outside of God's design. That's the nature of seduction. It twists God's gifts into devastating snares of ruin. And and Joseph is being confronted with intense, repeated seduction in a situation where culturally it would even be acceptable for him to capitulate to the seduction where it's culturally acceptable to be adulterous and to be sexually promiscuous. It's a pagan culture. And pagan cultures are are defined by 
by visual and sensual gratification and, and trying to find immediate gratification for all the desires of the flesh and completely ignoring God's design. And the bombardment on the senses, the bombardment on the senses from from image-based seduction that appeals to the desires of our flesh can easily numb our spirit and our mind to the reality of God's presence. It's designed to do that. Right? Who energizes this world system? It's not an angel of light, although he sometimes poses as one. It is the enemy of our souls. And there is nothing more that he wants than to bombard God's people with, with a sense of it's okay to gratify your desires outside of God's plan. It's all right. You need this. But what we find is that Joseph, by God's grace, endures. So what do we find as Joseph's acknowledgement of God's presence? How does Joseph acknowledge God's presence in the face of this intense sensual bombardment, this intense seduction to, to defy God? Well, there are three elements here in Joseph's refusal. First, we find an explicit refusal, an explicit refusal. Verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you're his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There's an explicit verbalized refusal. No, I'm not going to do that. And Joseph reasons according to the reasoning that's found in the book of Proverbs. That this would be a breach of trust with your husband. That this would be a, a, a breach of, of everything that I stand for in the, in the role of authority that I've been given. It, it would be disastrous to the whole relationship. It would be disastrous to the whole household. But ultimately, and where he ends, ultimately it would be a sin against God. And, and the value of what you have in, in Joseph's explicit refusal is that Joseph is expressing what is common sense for a godly man. This is common sense for a godly man. I can't take another man's wife. I can't be seduced by the world. It's disastrous. It's ruinous. It's against God. And again, it reflects the counsel that Solomon gives in Proverbs 6 and 7 to a young man, but it is common sense for a godly man. He has thought this through prior to the point of temptation, and his reasoning leads him to understand that failure would be to sin against God. Explicit refusal. 
You know, there, there, there is a reality when it comes to dealing with temptation that you have to prepare. You take on the full armor of God. And Joseph is showing a prepared mind, a mind that has been shaped by, by reasoning of the truth. And as he refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife, that reasoning comes out in his explicit statements. For our minds to be saturated in this way, to reason according to the truth, means that we need to have the truth in our minds, doesn't it? The psalmist says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If God's word is not in our minds, in our hearts, if God's thoughts are not becoming our thoughts, then we are easy prey for seduction. The bombardment of images in in our day in particular is a bombardment of our senses and without intentionally grounding our minds in the truth of the Word, the Word, the Word of God, the question of capitulation is not a matter of if, it's when. God's Word must be central, not just in, in, on paper that we say it's central, but in our actual pursuit, in our actual life, God's Word must be central. We must learn to think God's thoughts after Him so that when that point of temptation comes, by His grace we can say, No! This is a sin against God! We find, however, that in the case of Potiphar's wife, that wasn't enough. Verse 10 says, she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. (laughs) You know, if there's a situation that we don't like or that's uncomfortable, we often have the the blessed opportunity of, of changing that. Joseph didn't have that. He was a slave. He had to continue to fulfill his duties. He had to continue to go about his business. And and some people uh, surmise that verse 10 compresses up to a year's worth of day after day after day after day badgering to sin. But along with the explicit refusal, we find that Joseph exercised a consistent Resistance. He was consistent in his resistance. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. As she is employing every mechanism possible to seduce Joseph from threats to exposure and everything in between, Joseph did everything he could to give a wide berth to to temptation and to sin. He would not be with her. 
to lie with her or to even be with her. He did everything he could consistently. We have this mindset echoed for us in Romans 13. Go ahead and turn over to that passage, Romans 13. Again, thinking about what Paul writes in Romans 15, that these Old Testament records are are for our encouragement. We have an example of what we're told to do in Romans 13, verse 13. And, And think about this in the context that Paul has laid out the gospel. He's telling us how to live lives that are living sacrifices for God. And part of living a life that is a living sacrifice for God is is avoiding sin. And so in Romans 13, verse 13, Paul writes, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." You see the contrast there? Paul says, on the one hand, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. Continue to clothe yourself with the mind of Christ, with the character of Christ, with the commitments of Christ to honor God in all things and all the ways that you live. But it's not just a one-sided thing. Positively, you also make no provision for the flesh. You are intentional about making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires either. You don't don't just accidentally not sin. By God's grace, by the, by the grace of a transformed life in Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God in you, your life becomes characterized by constantly putting on Christ and constantly making no provision for the flesh to, to, to gratify its desires. That's the way a Christian lives. And that's the way Joseph was living. And it is, oh, you know, you look at Joseph and you think, he, he didn't even have the Bible. He had no Bible. And yet, he was consistent in his refusal. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Explicit refusal, consistent resistance. But then we... We come to the point of greatest temptation in verse 11. One day when he went out of the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. No one was there. It was culturally acceptable. No doubt Potiphar's wife was a beautiful woman. Everything, everything was in favor of Joseph's flesh. But he ran. That explicit refusal and consistent resistance led to his decisive retreat. And that decisive retreat was an acknowledgement of what he already stated back in verse 
9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That continued to be his mantra. No, there's no man here, but God is. And I'm going to run. Even as you grasp upon my clothes, I'm going to get out without a concern for my clothes. I'm out of here. I'm running away. The acknowledgement of his presence was in the explicit refusal, the consistent resistance, and the decisive retreat. God remains with his people in the face of seduction. And isn't it so wonderful for us? Because I'm, I'm speaking to a room of humans, and I am a human speaking to humans, and we all deal with sin. We all deal with the flesh in some way, shape, or form. But the glory and the wonder and the encouragement of this reminder is that in the most intense points of struggle with sin, God is with us. We're never alone. God is with us. He is our strength. He gives us wisdom. He gives us strength to to fight temptation and to emerge victorious for his glory because of his power and his work in us. You are not alone. You are not alone in times of temptation. God remains with his people in the face of seduction. And even in those times of temptation, it, you know, it feels like that's the one thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. But there's a whole bigger picture to take into account that God is carrying out his purposes And as a child of God, my longing is to to be an instrument in his hands, like Paul tells Timothy, that has put aside what is dishonorable, that has learned to flee from sin. And God is with me. God is with me to give the strength to do that. You know, we can... There, this is one of those places where just pastorally, you just want to stop and dwell and plead. You, you can never underestimate the devastation that sin brings. In, in the moment, it seems like, you know what? It won't hurt anybody but me. That's a lie. That's a lie. And even even private sin brings destruction in a ripple effect. Sin is devastating. It's apart from God's design. It, it, It will never turn out well. You, you, might, you might gain a few moments of pleasure, but, but the long-term devastation is horrendous, incalculable. And so, praise the Lord that when we fall, we have the promise If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And we cling to that. We have to have that because we do. But oh, that we would be, that we would be convicted and stirred anew to be faithful to the Lord in a consistent battle against sin. To not be relying on constantly asking for forgiveness and, and looking that as, as a license to sin. But that by God's grace, we would have a Joseph mindset that says, no, how can I do this wickedness against God? He's right here. He is with me. God remains with his people in the face of seduction. And when we think about how God ultimately used Joseph, this this becomes almost a knife edge. Again, from a human perspective, a knife edge of destinies. But God was with him, and he prevailed. Well, that brings us to the last portion of this chapter. So what happened? I mean, he obeyed his dad, and he got sold into slavery. Now he's resisted temptation. What's going to happen? Let's pick up at verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant has treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him the steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Well, God remains with his people in separation, in seduction. And what we find in these last verses is that God remains with his people despite slander. God remains with his people despite slander. We have the devastating reality of slander laid out for us here in its devastating fullness. In verses 13 to 19 of the the record of Potiphar's wife lying, we find that slander is perpetrated by evil people. Potiphar's wife completely reverses what happened. Joseph ran, leaving his coat And then she screamed. She says she screamed, and then Joseph left his coat. 
Moses is emphasizing the lying character of Potiphar's wife. And, you know, the backside of sin and the backside of temptation, this is what you always find on the backside of seduction. You always find a liar. You always find someone that will slander. You always find evil. And that is very clear in this passage. She changes the details even about his shirt. Joseph left it in her hand because she was the aggressor, and she says that he left it near her, indicating that he had removed it of his own accord. And she even indicts Potiphar as partially to blame for the incident since he brought Joseph in. And you have here all the echoes of Genesis 3. She's slanderously shifting blame and indicting Joseph in the process. One commentator says that Potiphar's wife, who, note, we don't even know her name, is a subtle mistress of syntactic equivocation. And what he means by that, I was like, what does that mean? Um, what he means by that is that she, she's saying things, she's, she's using words that have multiple meanings without ever indicting herself. She's a master of manipulation. She's a master of words to use for her advantage. And it comes out of a character of evil to the point that she's willing even to indict her own husband, which obviously is part of her character with the seduction that she was attempting to induce on Joseph. Slander is perpetrated by evil people. And folks, when the righteous come up against evil like that, it really is in the Lord's hands. And that evil is ultimately destructive to the innocent. Verse 9, look at verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, this is, this is somewhat interesting. We're not told who Potiphar was angry with. You see that? His anger was kindled. In fact, in, in most commentaries, the speculation is that he's, he's not really angry with Joseph as, he, as much as he is with his own wife. He knew her character is the implication. But he was in a position where if he believed a slave instead of his wife, there were incredible social implications. But also the penalty for Joseph's, the, what Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of would have been death in that culture. And Potiphar instead put him in the king's prison. So Joseph was removed, yes, from Potiphar's house because of the testimony of Potiphar's wife. But what we find is that God was still with Joseph. 
And, and, and again, this is where when we, when we think about temptation and capitulating to temptation, that there are times when in our, in our fleshly reasoning, we think, you know what? If, if I don't give in, then, then what's going to happen? It could get worse if I don't give in. But what we find as Joseph remains faithful to God in temptation, well, yes, he does endure slander for doing what is righteous. God remains with him. In fact, we're even told in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So although the, the circumstances seem to have gotten worse, what we find is that Joseph is still the object of the Lord's steadfast love. The Lord is still with him. The Lord is still working. The Lord is still carrying out his purposes, even in the midst of that awful slander that Joseph is facing from, from Potiphar's wife. And we see a, a reflection of how the chapter started and the evidence of God's providence. You, you have the favor of an observer from the keeper of the prison. At the end of verse 21, the Lord gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. In verses 22 and 23, you have the extended blessing. He was over all of Potiphar's house. Now he's over everything in the jail. The Lord is still with him. In verse 23, again, the statement of personal success at the very end of the chapter, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God remains with his people despite slander. God remains with his people. God remains with his people to secure his purposes. When Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, that incredible overview of Israel's history leading to the culmination of the coming of Christ, he also mentioned Joseph. And and this is what he said about Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And so God's inspired lesson from this chapter is that he is with his people. And Joseph also gave testimony to this. If you remember the rest of Joseph's story, he's in jail, but then he's forgotten after he interprets dreams for a couple of years. But ultimately, Pharaoh calls him to interpret a dream And he's promoted to second in the land. And the Lord uses him to save his family. But at the end of that story, after Joseph's father dies, and his brothers are now fearful, what is Joseph going to do to us now that he's in power? And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, we have a glimpse of, of Joseph's mindset, verse, beginning in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
just pause right there for a moment. Anytime we violate God's law, God's principles, we're, we're essentially saying we are in the place of God. Joseph is saying out in his testimony here, he's saying, am I in the place of God? And the, and, and the implication is, no, I'm not. And he's lived that way throughout his life. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. When you sold me into slavery, when I went into Potiphar's house, that, that you intended evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's Joseph's statement of theology. People do things to me with the intent of evil, but I know who's with me. I know who's in control. I know whose purposes are being carried out. It's God's. And so even though you mean it for evil, God intends it for good. God takes even the worst evil, even the most slanderous statements of a Potiphar's wife, and he accomplishes his good and his purposes through that. God is with his people. And Joseph was absolutely confident of God's continued work. And so, back to the title, doing good when wronged, right? It's not a matter of, okay, I've just got to do good, I've just got to do good. It's a matter of, I know who's in control. And even when people do wrong, God is with me. And I'll do good for the glory of God. Turn to one other passage with me, Psalm 37. Psalm 37. This is a psalm where we're instructed to not fret in the face of evil when we're wrongly treated mistreated, don't fret, don't fret, don't fret, is the theme of Psalm 37. But in the midst of that psalm, we have several statements about what we should do. Look at verse 3, Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, now think about that in context with, with Joseph. Here he's being slandered. He has no chance to defend himself. The psalmist says, trust in the Lord, do good. And you know what will happen? God, in his time, he'll bring forth your righteousness. Trust in the Lord. Verse 27. Verse 27. 
Again, repeated idea. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. Are we seeing the pattern here? God is calling his people to do good, not for the sake of doing good only, but for the sake of the Lord who is with his people, for the sake of the Lord who is with his saints and who will not forget them. Verse 34, wait for the Lord. Know what that implies? Sometimes you have to wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. And then verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The secret of doing right when wronged is to grasp that you are doing right not for the immediate outcome, not for what you might get out of it, but for the glory of the God who is with you. Because God remains with His people. God remains with His people to secure His purposes. And as we close tonight, I I don't have time tonight to develop this, but the ultimate fulfillment of what we've seen is in Christ, is it not? Christ was separated from his Father. Christ was tempted by the devil. Christ was slandered by his own people. And he committed himself to his Father. And he accomplished our redemption. And so the story of Joseph, while yes, it holds many important lessons for us, it ultimately points to our Savior who has accomplished our salvation and in whom we stand as by his grace we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires but pursue obedience to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us in your word the lives of your people, the lives of people who were sinners just like us, but lives where your grace dominated and permeated, lives that you used to accomplish grand purposes for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that through Christ and through the strength that we have in him, that we would pursue a life that brings glory to you, whether things are going well or poorly, that our focus would be on the Lord who is with us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.